Many authors think the only reason to build an author platform is to attract a traditional publisher. In some, they see the need for a platform to launch their independent book. But did you know that your platform can actually make you money all on its own? We're going to talk about how you can make money from your platform in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and we have a very special guest today. I know some of you see me as the old man of podcasting since I started my first podcast in 2007, but there is another, an even older and wider podcast than myself. He is who I go to when I need podcast advice, and he started his podcast in 2005 and is in the podcasting Hall of Fame. He just finished his new book, Profit from Your Podcast, Proven Strategies to Turn Listeners into a Livelihood, which is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. And what he talks about in that book is helpful not just for podcasters, but for influencers of all kinds. Dave Jackson, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. I feel like I should talk like this. Thank you for having <laughs> yoga. No, uh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. Hey, I don't often introduce somebody as the old man of podcasting, but you are the old man of podcasting. It's it's a sign of respect. It's, it's weird. I was at an event and I sat down and then a guy named Evo Terra sat down next to me and I was like, oh, normally I'm the OG. I go, that guy started in 2004. So he's the old, you know. Chiseling your RSS feeds by hand on stone tablets, how we did it. So in your book, uh, you talk about uh, making money off of your audience. And the first step of making money off of the audience is to get an audience. So for somebody first starting out, where do you recommend that they get started? It really all starts with your audience and knowing who that is. And that really means, you know, and some people are like, well, I don't have an audience, so how do I how do I know what they want? And there are things you can do. One of my favorite little activities is I will go to Amazon and I will type in a topic that I'm going to be podcasting about. And I look for two and three star reviews because one star reviews are really easy. It's like, this is awful. Don't buy it. And four star reviews was best thing ever. Love it. And I'm like, okay, but two star reviews and especially three star reviews, are like, you know what? This was a good book, but I really was hoping it was going to talk about blank. And then you're like, okay, this is what people are looking for. So you can kind of get an idea at least of a target of where you want to go. And then once you do that, you will get feedback from people that like, hey, have you ever talked about so-and-so and this and that? So once you get that and you, you're getting people going, thank you so much that you did this episode, this really helped me, or I didn't know this, or that was really funny, et cetera, et cetera. Now you know you're connecting with your audience, and that's where you can go out and start promoting it. And I always just tell people it's kind of hard in the age of COVID as we record this, but you used to be able to go places where your audience was, and I always say them. The next step is not to tell them about your podcast, but to actually make friends with them. Because if the first thing out of your mouth is, oh, and I have a podcast, they're like, great, who are you? And so it's kind of spammy when you do that. But if you go in and you have conversations with people and they're like, wow, this this person seems pretty cool. She seems to know what she's talking about. And then you say, oh, I talked about this on my podcast. They're like, wait, what's you have a podcast? So it really does, you know, know who your audience is, go to where they are. Listen to what they're talking about, because that might be episodes that you talk about in the future. Then tell them about your podcast, and then just don't quit. Yeah, this is a mistake I see a lot of authors making, especially when they first get started. They have a passion for a book, and so they sit down and they write that book, and then they try to go out and find readers 
for the book. And often they don't even start that process until the book is already published. Right? They've independently published it and it's not getting sales. And they're like, huh, I need, to, I need to go find some readers. And that's a totally backwards approach. And it's not what we recommend here on the podcast. What I would recommend on the novel marketing approach is to start with your reader. And what I recommend now is actually to find a real life representation of your reader. What I used to do was I'd have authors put together like a fictional person, a persona of their target reader. And I'd say, you know, get a stock photo of them and describe them and and write to them. And I found that it's much better to actually find a real human being (laughs) that was with an actual birth certificate and an actual personality and let that person be the representation of everyone else who's like them. And if you start with your reader and try to write books for your reader and create podcasts for your reader and write blog posts for your reader, rather than trying to find readers for the things that you're doing, everything gets easier. That's the top button. And if you put that button correctly, all the other buttons line up after it. And another key ingredient out of that is that person, they should not share your last name. Like no, no relatives, like mom is going to say it's great. And I see that all the time. And I, I think part of it is because it's art. Like it is, and you know, it's something you, you just spent four hours working on this hour long podcast. And the last thing you want to do is go, hey, and you have to put yourself out there and go, does this work for you? And if somebody comes back and says, no, you're like, oh, and, but I see it all the time. You know, my numbers aren't going up. I don't seem to be growing anything. And I'll put out the question, you know, did you get feedback from somebody you're not related to? And it's funny because that never gets a reply. And that kind of lets me know what the answer is, but it's like, well, I'm promoting it on, you know, YouTube and or video and Facebook and chat off and what, you know, insert <laughs> social media. And I'm like, yeah, you never, you never did kind of a focus group. And uh, those come in handy. It stops you from wasting time. And it never goes away. The need to get to know and listen to your readers or your listeners or your, you know, people Mm -hmm. who follow you on social media is just as important when you have a million people following you as it was when you were trying to get your first 10 people following you. It's crazy. But if you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. (laughs) It means knowing who you're trying uh, to serve. Uh, One of the things you talk about in your book is giving your audience something to talk about. And I know that that's a real key way of growing your audience quickly is to get them buzzing about what you're doing and, you know, buzzing about your podcast, buzzing about your book. So what are some strategies to uh, give people something to talk about? I think one of the ones I see is I have people that they'll do an interview show because they're like, well, then my guest will share it. And then they'll do the exact same interview that that person has done over and over and over. And the example I always use, there's a guy, he's a friend of mine, Pat Flynn, has a great story, makes a gazillion dollars now, but he started off and he had an ebook. And if I have Pat on my show and explain to him how he got fired from his job and he wrote an ebook and it sold a gazillion dollars, Pat is not going to share that with his audience. Why? Because they've heard that story a million times. So you have to, you know, find a way to connect your, if you're doing interviews, how do you connect your guests' expertise to something that your audience is going to be like, oh, I didn't know that. I got to go home and try that. And then they're going to go tell their friends and family and things of that nature. So just it really, again, it always comes back to who is my audience and and what can they do and, and do that. And then the other thing is, just be yourself. I see some. I saw. I saw a thing today. Somebody said, "I'm starting a podcast next month. I have a really deep voice. Is that okay?" <laughs> and I was like, "As long as I can understand you, brother, it's it's great." You know, it's. It, I think we kind of overthink everything a little bit. 
So anything like that, and like I share, I'll give you an example. I did a uh, an episode once on how you have to have passion when you start your podcast, because when you first start off, if you get all your cousins to listen, you might get 32 downloads for that first episode, and you're expecting 300. And I said, uh, at the time I was married, and I had a 16-year-old stepson who was uh, trying to get his driver's license. And every time I got within 50 feet of that kid, he would turn around and say, can we go driving? Can we go driving? Can we go driving? And I said, so when you first start off, you have to have the passion of a 16-year-old trying to get their license because that's what's going to push you through to the time when you actually have an audience. So I just shared that. It was it was a part of my life, but it also illustrated the point. And I had so many people reach out to me and say, I've got one of those too. My daughter almost killed me last night. She almost hit a pole or whatever it was. And so that's another thing that you know, great content is, is stuff you can't get anyplace else. And so that will work. I think another ingredient is vulnerability. If you can, if you're going to share yourself a little bit, you don't always have to be perfect. And one of the things I was really surprised, I've been doing it for a while now, but I was doing an episode and for some reason, my mouth had already just left. It was like, I'm done. We're out of here. And I just kept flubbing up and flubbing up. And so I started kind of saving these and I put them at the end. And I had so many people were like, oh, wow, that was so funny. I'm so glad you did that. And I was like, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. They're like, yeah, I thought you were perfect. And I was like, oh, so far from, no, not even close. And so that was one that, again, people were like, oh, this, I can relate to this guy a little more now because I'm doing the same thing. And I now see what he does. He goes in and, and fixes it. So it sounds great. So you don't have to be perfect. So if you're recording a podcast and you flub over saying your own name, you can fix that. I think another aspect of giving people something to talk about is being willing to take a stand on something and, and not backing down. Obviously, this depends on your topic and it depends on your brand. You don't want to just throw bombs at people and at topics just for the sake of it, although that does work for some people's brands. So yeah. that's who you want to be. Maybe go for it. Uh, and I'll say I, I went through that just a couple of episodes ago with this podcast. We did an episode on cancel culture. And I had a lot of, it's part of the reason why I don't say I respond to every email. <laughs> I, I read every email, you know, we send out emails for every episode and I read every email and I respond to most of them, but I don't respond to all of them. If you're shouting at me in all caps about how I'm a terrible person for not supporting cancel culture, I'm not going to respond. <laughs> yeah. And if you're really mean, I might even click unsubscribe <laughs> to get you off my list. Well, I have a, an old kind of, uh, if you remember the old Spider-Man cartoons, he would say, my spider senses are tingling. And there are times when I have this little this little voice in my head. It's like, are you sure you want to put that out? Like, mm. are you like, man, it's usually something that either I'm, I'm getting close to a line or I'm being a little controversial. I did an episode once where I run into people and I'm like, look, if you're going to have a podcast, it's going to cost you somewhere between five and $20 a month just for your media host. And if $15 is going to, to break your bank, you know, you don't need a podcast you need a job. And I pictured people going, you're poor shaming and pushing back on that. And I was like, look, I can say this. I've There's a difference between being poor and broke. And I've been absolutely broke. And if $15 is going to ruin your budget, I'm not here to tell you, you need a job. You don't need a podcast because you're, those are the people that also want to start a podcast and start making money in six weeks. And I wish I was exaggerating and I'm not. They want to make money, like quit your day job money in six weeks. And I like, that's just not going to happen. So that's an example where, again, kind of standing up for what you believe in. And the beauty of it, 
and I, I wish I would have done that episode about 10 years ago, is after that, I didn't get anybody contacting me saying, I want to start a podcast and quit my day job in six weeks, because they already heard that episode, and they're like, ah, this guy's not for me. And I was like, oh, I should have done this so long ago. This would have been great. Yeah, you can't dig a well while you're thirsty. If you're dying of thirst, you will die of thirst before you hit water in the well. You need a reliable source of water while you're digging. And that's not just true for podcasting, making money with your podcast. That is perhaps even more true with making money with your book because it takes a long time to get good enough at the craft of writing and to go through the publishing process and to write enough books where the you know where you finally strike water. It takes some work. And speaking of striking water, you may be like, this is supposed to be about monetization. Why did you talk so much about crowd building and audience building? It's like, because it's that important. But I do want to talk about some specific monetization uh, strategies. And I th- I feel like one of the easiest ones that almost anyone can get started with is affiliate marketing. So what is affiliate marketing? Affiliate marketing is where you go to a company and you apply to be an affiliate. And they're like, yes, you can be an affiliate. And they give you a special link that shows that that person that, you know, that visitor to their website came from Dave Jackson. And then if they buy, you get a percentage of that sale. And it's one of those things where if you are starting out and you're like, okay, I'd like to generate some revenue, just go around your house and explain, look at the things that you use all the time and you could talk about firsthand. And then here's a key ingredient that also fits your audience. Right. It always goes back to who's your audience, what do they want? And so I started a weight loss show years ago. I thought if I talked about my weight, it would hold myself accountable. And it turns out it doesn't. Uh, but, but I still do it. And, uh, when Fitbits first came out, they were brand new and Fitbit had an affiliate program. And every time somebody signed up, I made nine bucks and I didn't do this giant pitch. It was just like, Hey, I got this thing. And, you know, I stick it in my pocket and I'm finding now that it's almost like a game that, you know, I, I want to walk more and I'm trying to beat my high record and this and that. And every time somebody bought a Fitbit, you know, here's another nine bucks. I had uh, on that same show, I was promoting the total gym because you've always heard that thing in marketing where people have to hear something like seven times before they buy. And at the time, Christy Brinkley and Chuck Norris were doing like every time you turned on the TV, there they were you know, talking about total gym. And I'm like, good. I'll write on their coattails. I'll mention it. I had one and this should work. And I promoted it for a year and nobody bought one. And then finally somebody did. And it was a nice commission. It was like 75 bucks. But if you looked at how long I promoted it, it was really, really, I didn't earn anything for the amount of time I put in it. And then I found these things called fit decks. And anytime I have a product I always try to get one. I I rarely, rarely will talk about something on my show that I have not held in my hand and actually used. And so I got one of these decks and I dealt myself a little workout and talked about it. It's like, wow, I'm really sore from this. I didn't think it was going to be that hard, but it was easy. But I'm woken up today and, you know, my arms hurt, my chest hurts. And this is this is actually really cool. And then I said the phrase that pays and I didn't know it because I didn't know my audience as good as I thought I did. And I said, I could see like playing this as a game with your kids. And that's when I found out that my audience was more women than male, and they all had kids. And I had my phone set up to where every time somebody would order one of these, it would make this like little ring noise on my phone. And I was teaching at the time, I was a corporate trainer, and I kept hearing, I had to turn my phone off, so I kept feeling it vibrate. <laughs> and I would I would make a $1.50 
on a fifteen dollar uh, deck of cards, and you would just like ding ding, and all of a sudden you'd look up and you're like, wow, that that person ordered three decks because they had different varieties, and I made so much more money selling a dollar fifty at a time because I had the right product for the right audience. The other thing is a total gym apparently is a beast to ship. And because my audience was primarily women, they associate a lot of times with weightlifting as bulking up, but they don't want to bulk up. And so if you get the right product for the right audience, you can actually make some decent money with affiliate marketing. And one of the best places if you're an author to get started with affiliate marketing is book reviews. The biggest affiliate program in the world is Amazon's. There's pros and cons of Amazon's affiliate program, but it's very easy to use, probably the easiest one to use. And if you do a book review on your blog, let's say you're writing YA and you review a YA book, it's good content for your readers. They want to know what their YA author that they like, what YA books that author likes. It's great content for your blog, great content for your email or for your podcast. Let's say 100 people buy the book at $10. You make $40. And if you do four of those posts a month, then suddenly you're making $120 a month, which covers all of your expenses of doing that blog, all of the expenses of doing that podcast. And as you grow your audience, that number improves. And so affiliate marketing isn't like millions of dollars raining from the heavens, but it is a really great way. And for a lot, I would say for a lot of authors, it's this first way that they move from losing money to making money even if it's not big money. The nice thing about it too is it's a test drive of your audience because if you later want to get into advertising, you need to know how engaged your audience is. You need to know what they're interested in. And so this lets you see, okay, I've got, you know, whatever, 500 people listening to the episode. When I put this link on here, you know, 12 of them clicked on it, two of them bought it. So you get a little insight into that. And the other thing that's great about Amazon is they might click on the book And if they decide, "Eh, I'm not going to buy this book, but then they turn around and buy a bunch of other stuff. Like somebody bought a flat screen TV once and I was like, hallelujah. I don't know. I'm like, I didn't, (laughs) the link I put on my website was not to a flat screen, but that was a nice little cha-ching. So Amazon definitely, like you said, it has a pros and and cons, but it's an easy place to start. And it's where I recommend getting started because guess what? You can also be an affiliate for your own book. So you'll get paid from your publisher, but you can get paid a second time from Amazon's affiliate program. And if you haven't sold through your advance yet, if you're traditionally published, the only money that's going to be coming in is that affiliate money from Amazon. And it's money that's otherwise left on the table. And let me say, Amazon has plenty of money. (laughs) You don't need to leave money on the table for Jeff Bezos. He's the wealthiest man in the world. So you might as well get that for yourself. But we should talk briefly about some of the pitfalls of affiliate marketing because this is where you can really get into trouble. You don't want to recommend books or products that are bad because you can really ruin your reputation. Just like it helps you get to know your audience based off of what they're buying and what they're not buying, which is really helpful as you create content for them. It also lets them get to know you and you want them to get to know the right you and you don't want to give the wrong impression that you're somebody with bad taste. So what are some tips when it comes to, or what are some mistakes I would say that people fall into when they do affiliate marketing? I think they're going for the big fish. You know, they're like, ooh, if I could, you know what? That's a good idea. I'm going to promote flat screens on my show about, you know, whatever, jolly old England or something like that. Like, wait, how does that tie in? And so, but they're thinking, if I could just get a couple people to buy these. And so they're going for the big fish instead of, like I said, what are you using? What can you personally talk about? Things like that. And then 
I see in some cases, you have to be read the terms of an agreement, the, the whole thing, there's like paragraphs from Amazon, and just realize that when you get done with that, you're going to be confused. And what's great about it is just about the time you think you got it understood, they will change them. So, but like, for instance, I was banned once from Amazon because I put shop here and support the show. Because I thought, well, that would be an incentive for people. They're like, hey, I, I could shop over here, but if I go here, I help support Dave. That's against Amazon's terms for whatever reason I do not understand. So I cannot put click here to support the show or anything like that. So there's some weird terms in there that you, you want to pay attention to because they can get a, a little weird. The other thing I do is if I find a product that I like and I go to their website, I go to the bottom and sure enough, it's they either have the word affiliates or partners or something like that. And I click on it. I, I The first thing I want to do is go to their website and see how easy is it to actually order the product. Because in some cases, if their website's like from you know, whatever, 1992, and it's really, you know, the whole point is you get paid when they buy something. And if it's super hard to buy something, you're never going to get paid. And the other thing I look into, because they'll have, they'll put up a big list of like, here's our terms. Look and see when do you get paid? Because it's like, oh, you get paid when you reach $100. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm making a $1.50 per sale. I have to have, you know, 4,000 sales before I get paid. And that's when you're like, eh, maybe that's not the one for me. So those are some things to look out for. Another thing that's important to say is that in the United States, at least, you're required to disclose your affiliate connection. Now, there's different ways that this is done. Some people hide it in the legalese of their website so that they're technically abiding by uh, the letter of that law. And the other strategy, and this is what I've started adopting, is Joanna Penn strategy, where every single affiliate link that I put on my website, I put parentheses affiliate link next to it because I want this to be a way for people to consciously support the show. <laughs> it's a way of like, hey, I find this free podcast that you gave me helpful. I want to you know, help support the podcast. I'm going to look for the affiliate link. And my goal is to provide enough value where people want to click the affiliate links. And I don't ever want to be accused of being like, oh, you, ne you didn't disclose your, your affiliate connection. And I think that you know, you should feel confident with the things that you're recommending. And if you ever feel bad about disclosing your affiliate connection, that's a bad sign <laughs> that maybe you're recommending the wrong product. Well, and, and then you have people like me. I today needed to buy something from Amazon. And I was like, well, who do I want to support today? So I went over to Ray Ortega's site, clicked on his link for cameras, which I was not buying. But that was enough. It sent me to Amazon, and then I ordered this drill bit thing, and he'll get a commission on that. So it's it's a way for your audience to support you. I did the same thing for years. I went to Dan Carlin's website before I made any big Amazon purchase. Uh, he's a history podcaster, and yeah. I love him to pieces. Um, let's talk about crowdfunding because this is the other big one that's really popular with authors. You have like, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen different ways of making money in your book, and we're not going to – get to them all. But one that a lot of authors use. In fact, one of the authors who went through our book launch blueprint just posted yesterday that she put a her book on Kickstarter with the goal of raising $2,500 and she's already raised $5,000, which is really exciting. So nice. uh, let's talk a little bit about crowdfunding and how authors and podcasters can use it uh, to raise funds. Yeah. The thing I always see is whatever the bonus is for the audience make sure it's an actual bonus. I've seen people that are like, hey, they'll fire up a Patreon account. And they're like, if we get up to X amount of money, 
I'm going to buy a bunch of new gear. And I'm like, mm, does that really benefit the, like, unless you're using two cans and some string to record your podcast, like, is that really a benefit? Like if your audio is okay, if nobody's complaining about the audio quality, do you really need the new microphone? So I, I see that a lot. It really does boil down to from, from the different people I interviewed, your audience wants either more of you. Like there's the, the people that are making the most right now, at least publicly on Patreon, they do four episodes and they have two that are free and two that are not. They charge five bucks and they're making something ridiculous, like $130,000 a month. And I, what's really weird, I think they're called El Chapo House, if I remember right. And I've listened to two of their episodes because I'm like, I want to hear how they're promoting this. And they don't. So it's still kind of a mystery to me. I'm like, the only thing I can think of is maybe these people all had giant audiences and they pulled together and it's some sort of Avengers of political talk, which is what the show's about. Because I'm like, how are these guys just knocking it out of the park? I, I can tell you how they're doing it. Oh, good. Yeah. So here's the I haven't listened to that particular show, but I can tell you what the best strategy is and there's the strategy that you think works best and what sadly i do more often than not and that is the you mention it every episode strategy and the better strategy is the pbs strategy where you have like a fundraising season (laughs) where you Mm. really push it for a short period of time and we do that kind of on this podcast when we do a new course often patrons will get a discount we'll have a lot of people sign up to become patrons so that they can get that discount on the course, but it's, it's better to really have like a pledge drive season or some, like everybody who becomes a patron this month gets this free bonus or something along those lines more than kind of hitting it at the end of every episode. That said, there is a featured patron at the end of this episode. So stick around <laughs> to find out who it is. And did I, did I say 130,000? How dare me? It's 158,000. They have uh, 35,000 patrons. So that's a little crazy. Uh, the other thing people want is in some cases they want to help control the show. So I talk about Jonathan Oakes, who does Trivia Warfare, and he has this like big grand poobah meeting. I don't know if it's once a quarter or something like that. And if you pledge a certain level, you get to actually pick ideas that they could talk about. And then if you have another level even higher, you actually get to participate in the discussion. So it's all about how can I get involved with the show? And that was the one thing he just kind of determined is his audience kept asking, like, how can I come on the show and play? Because it's a trivia game. And he was like, oh, I have something of value that they want. Maybe I should charge for this. And that's how he, you know, started off his patron. And I actually do something similar. We only have one episode that's just for patrons every month, but it's a Q&A episode where the patrons send in the questions and answer the questions. But probably every other month or so, one of the questions is so good that I end up doing a whole episode on it. So the, whoever send in that question gets their question, you know, they get a whole 30-minute answer to that question. So they're able to kind of control the direction of the podcast. And I like it because I know if that one patron was asking that question, they represent many others who are asking that same question. And hopefully it keeps me from getting too much into the ivory tower where I'm talking about esoteric topics that no one knows what I'm talking about. And we probably should say when crowdfunding is a technology of raising money from a crowd, you have to get the crowd first. And there's two main approaches to crowdfunding. There's the Patreon approach, which is what we've been talking about. It's the you pay every month kind of membership model. And then the other model is the Kickstarter model. This is where people donate 
all at once. This was the only model back when I was a kid. People used to be like, help fund season seven of the podcast and we have to raise $20,000. The podcast won't happen. Uh, Patreon's much better for podcasting. Kickstarter, though, is better if you're trying to create a book. Right? If you have $5,000 for the book expenses, you put your book on Kickstarter and you're able to test to see if people even want your book in the first place. Right? And maybe your book is a runaway hit. And you know, you're like Brandon Sanderson put one of his older books on Kickstarter last month. He had a goal of $150,000, a special edition, and he accidentally raised $6 million. Wow. I hate when that happens. <laughs> so he had to do a whole different round of printing, right? And, and he knew, and that's all they were going to make of the book. It's a limited edition. He let the Kickstarters decide how limited it was. It's not going to end up being very limited, but it ended up being very lucrative for him. And so which platform you pick depends a lot on what you're creating. And as an author, you actually can do both. And I've seen authors who do both. So some authors will be on Patreon and they give away an essay every month or they give away a short story every month. And this is great for ongoing recurring revenue. And it's great accountability. <laughs> People are paying for that short story. Yeah. You'd better write that short story. Um, whereas Kickstarter is better for launching that big project, that big album, uh, that big book. Well, and, and like you mentioned, it's a great way, again, to test an idea. For, before you go spending you know, all this time to write the book, you might want to see if people actually want it. And that's where you got to figure out, how can I explain this? You kind of have to really shape that idea first. So that you can say, this is what you're going to get. And then it's just a matter of, you know, testing the waters. And if you happen to raise $6 million, well, then you have to go, you know, unfortunately go write the book. But I think you'll be in good enough spirits to get through the project. Yeah, poor Sanderson is going to have to sign thousands and thousands of copies of his book for that $6 million. But I'm sure he'll find the strength somewhere <laughs> to sign all those books. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I did want to talk very briefly about live events because I feel like uh, for authors, this is the third strategy that can work for them. In some ways, it's the highest reward because it's the ultimate tribe building activity. You bring all of your fans together. They get to interact with each other, which makes them more excited about you. But it's also the most risky, right? You can have massively lose money with a live event. You generally don't lose money with crowdfunding. You generally don't lose money with affiliate marketing. You know, often the worst that happens is nothing happens. But if you spend a lot of money throwing a party and no one comes, that can be really painful. So give us some quick tips on live events. In a, let's hope in a future where live events actually happen. Yeah. Well, if we go back, one of the uh, the biggest podcast events is called Podcast Movement, and it was started again with a Kickstarter. So that's a, a, a great tip. It's just like, hey, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to get it off the ground. If you would come and we're thinking it's going to be in this state on this time, you know, give them a, a clear picture of where they're going to go. And will you back this? And that's where you, you know, you have the VIP package and all these other things. And if they want it, they'll pay for it. And then like, great, you've got that out of the way. It's just a matter now of finding your location and getting the hotel rooms and all the other fun things and, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. That's really the, the fun part. So that would be, I think, the biggest tip if you're trying to do a live event is to do a Kickstarter first, you know, do a test run. And then after that, it's just a matter of... I'm trying to think of some of the things people do wrong. If you're going to have other speakers, that's always a, a fun little I've, – I've done that before working with speakers because you have to be clear to them on what they can and can't do on stage. I've seen people do just blatant self-promotion and, you know, if you've got your – because, again, we, we talked about this earlier. It's 
it's your brand. So if it's your event and everybody's up there just pitching, yeah, they're going to go, well, that guy was horrible, but they're also going to go, I'm never going to go back to Dave's event. So those are just a couple of quick ones. You have any other off the top of your head? I'd say one is always pick a venue that's too small. You're going to have a much more exciting venue in a full room that's bursting at the seams than that same number of people in a colossal room where, like, your voice is lost in the echo. The ratio of room size to event is really key. And you and I both spoke at the Spark uh, podcast conference, and part of the reason why that conference was so fun was that the room was full, right? It's easier to tell a joke from the stage. People are more likely to laugh. When the room is full, obviously you don't want it overly full where people are uncomfortable, but it's better to pick a smaller venue and sell out all the tickets where people are like, gosh, I should have bought my ticket. I'll have to buy next year as soon as I can than to have unsold tickets leading up to the conference. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So a lot of listeners have asked me to create a course on podcasting, and I have not. And part of the reason is because there is already a school of podcasting, which is excellent. So this is your chance. Briefly, tell us about Dave Jackson's School of Podcasting. It really comes with three things. Number one, step-by-step -step tutorials. So we like the biggest course in there is planning your podcast. It goes through all these things you need to think about before you, you jump in. So that's just one course. And there are things like how to build a website and how to get into Apple and Google and all those other things. So you have a lot of tutorials there. And then you have a private Facebook group filled with brilliant podcasting minds. So if you're trying to get some feedback on which artwork do you like better? Has anybody done this before? I'm thinking of doing that. There's a ton of people that you can bounce ideas off of. And then I also do twice a month, I do what I just call it because it's a school thing. I call it office hours. And so this is where you can just come in. And if you want to stay for five minutes and ask a question and leave, you can. If you want to, a lot of people just come in and hang out. I'm like, anybody got a question? They're like, nope, I'm just hanging out. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, but then they'll start talking what each other is doing. And, you know, I'm thinking about selling T-shirts. Who do you use for that? And then I also, every Friday... At uh, 1230 Eastern, I do lunch with Dave, which is just a little baby session. And the reason for that is one of the coaching sessions is on a Saturday, kind of Saturday morning-ish. So the people in Europe can do that. I have one that's about 930. That's great for the West Coast in the U.S. And then lunch with Dave is shorter, but it's every week is great for my one friend in Egypt that's like, this is perfect. And so I have it at different hours. And those are the three things. And of course, you've got me via email and all sorts of other ways to get you going. All right, and we will have a link to that in the show notes at schoolofpodcasting.com. And we'll also have a link to Dave's book, Profit from Your Podcast, Proven Strategies to Turn Listeners into a Livelihood. And yes, it is an affiliate link. If you are curious, it is an Amazon affiliate link. Our sponsor today is the Author Media Mastermind Groups. If you'd like me to personally help you hit your publishing goals, we have mastermind groups that you can join uh, where you and a small group of other people get coached by me every month and throughout the month in our Slack channel. We have, I think, one or two openings in the fiction group for unpublished fiction authors. So the other groups are full or on the verge of being full, but that group I think has two spots open as I record this. And our featured patron is Cheryl Elton, author of The Pathway of Peace, Living in a Growing Relationship with Christ. Learn how to calm the noises in your mind and experience God's peace and joy. And thank you, Cheryl, for being a patron of the podcast, helping keep this show on the air. I really appreciate you and everyone else who supports the show. And if you would like to become a patron, we have a link 
in the show notes. And if you can't afford to become a patron and still want to help the show, just click one of my affiliate links, which hopefully Amazon won't ding me for asking for. And Dave Jackson, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. This was great. You've been listening to Thomas Sumstead Jr. and Dave Jackson on the Novel Marketing Podcast. To find the blog version of this episode and to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit novelmarketing.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.